Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, what wonderful songs that remind us of the fact that Christ is our sufficiency. He is enough. Thank you for the fact that no matter what's going on in life, no matter what trials we currently face, no matter what difficulties we see in our country and in our world, that, Lord, were everything to be taken away from us, Christ would be enough. Lord, give us the grace to really believe that from our hearts, to live in the light of the riches that we have in Jesus, to live in the, in the light of the fact that we have everything that pertains to life and godliness through Jesus Christ. And Father, this morning, remind us of that. Remind us through the Gospel of Mark that we are blessed people if we have trusted in Jesus Christ. And I pray that for those who do not know you, those who are not Christians this morning, who have not turned from their sins and trusted in Jesus, that today would be the day where they would see Christ in a saving way and turn from their sins. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verses 8, or verses 1 through 21 is our text for this morning. My brother Alex read um, verses 1 through 21, and it's a long text, I realize, um, for us to cover this morning, and we will cover it all, but it's because we have here three particular accounts in verses 1 through 21 that are very closely related. Now, how many of you this morning love... A good sandwich. How many of you? Let's see a show of hands. Yes. How many of you love Subway sandwich? Yeah, you know. I'll tell you why I'm not really a big Subway sandwich guy anymore. How many of you love, is this even around, Togos? Is that even around anymore? How many of you love Togos? It's a little more healthy, huh? How many of you health people just like just making your own sandwich at home? Thank you very much. Yes. (laughs) I like that. Yes, well, recently one of my sons and I went to see a Yankees-Dodger game. And yeah, I know everybody's in, oh, Dodgers, what happened to them? But that's not the point, okay? We actually stopped by before the Dodger game, uh, Dodger-Yankee game to um, Jersey Mike's and had an amazing sandwich there. That's a rocking sandwich. So I could never go back now ever again to Togo's, Subway. Even home sandwiches just don't cut it anymore after Jersey Mike's. Okay, that's just me. Maybe you guys are not big Jersey Mike kinds of people. But the, the reason why I mentioned sandwiches, and I've mentioned this before, is not just because I want to get you guys hungry and thinking about physical food rather than spiritual food right now, okay? It's because of the fact that I mentioned before that Mark, the Gospel of Mark, um, loves a good sandwich, okay? Mark loves to squeeze in a particular account or narrative between two other accounts that are very similar in nature, okay? He does this again and again throughout the Gospel of Mark, and this is another sandwich, another Markin, Gospel of Mark sandwich here in verses 1 through 21 of Mark chapter 8 that our brother Alex read, where you have, um, first of all, the issue of the feeding of the 4,000 in verses 1 through 10, which really focuses on the faith of the disciples of Christ, as we're going to see. And then squeezed in there, you have this interaction with the religious leaders back on the west side of the Sea of Galilee in verses 11 through 13. And so that's focused on the unbelief of the religious leaders. And then you get back to the disciples in verses 14 through 21, where the focus again is on the faith of of Jesus' disciples. So we have another Markan sandwich here, if you will. And if you remember where we've been, it was in chapter 7, where things really escalated with the religious leaders, between Jesus and the religious leaders. Because they took offense at the fact that Jesus and his disciples didn't adhere to the tradition of Judaism, to the tradition of what they call the tradition of the elders. The Judaism of that day had created a sort of fence, a protective fence around the law of Moses of extra rules and restrictions and regulations and so forth. And the religious leaders really took offense at the fact that Jesus didn't seem to value the tradition of the elders, and neither did his disciples. And so Jesus, in Mark chapter 7, exposes the hypocrisy of these religious leaders and teaches on the nature of what uncleanness is and what it consists of. And the big principle, if you remember, that we learned in Mark chapter 7 is this. Jesus teaches them that every single person including the Jews, are sinners by nature. 
that they are unclean from the heart, that all people are born sinners, that they are depraved. And so then, on the heels of that strong interaction with the religious leaders and Jesus calling them out on on their hypocrisy, beginning in chapter 7 and verse 24, Jesus and his disciples go on a long, extended trip deep into Gentile territory. And so what we see and what we learn is that having just taught on who is unclean, on the nature of spirit, of defilement, if you will, the message that Jesus sends to the reader is, I'm going now to unclean territory. I'm going to go reach the spiritually sick. And so what does he do, as we saw last week, that on this long extended trip, deep into unclean Gentile territory, he heals the daughter of an unclean woman, and then a stammering deaf man, he heals him powerfully. And so by the time that we get to Mark chapter 8, our passage here, um, this is the tail end of this long extended trip into unclean territory. And they find themselves now on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, a place called the Decapolis, which was predominantly a Gentile, non-Jewish territory, predominantly unclean territory. And now Jesus has a lesson to teach his disciples and anyone who reads this account. And it is this. We are reminded in this particular account of the importance of paying attention to what we know to be true about Christ so that we would be people of faith. Listen again. The lesson this morning is this. We are reminded of the importance of paying close attention to what we know to be true about Christ so that we might be people who live trusting in Him. That we might be people of strong faith. This issue of living by faith in light of what we know to be true about God and His gospel in Christ is so important for us, beloved, to consider this morning. Think about this. We live in a day and age when there is so much access to the Bible, isn't there? So much access to amazing Bible doctrine, Bible teaching, amazing access to all kinds of teachers, world-class teachers, Um, all over the world that you can listen to. We have so much access to Bible, it's massive, and yet how oftentimes our knowledge doesn't translate to the very way that we think and live. How often the things that we know to be true don't impact our thinking, our worship, our decision-making, our outlook and our perspective of life. I was thinking about this recently, about how oftentimes we just don't translate what we know to our life trials even. And I got a lesson on this a few years ago on this particular thing. I was looking at some pictures uh, recently, and I came across a picture of the day when I became a U.S. citizen a few years ago. It was an amazing day. If you've, if you've been um, a citizen, you were born and raised here in the United States, I mean, you can often take for granted the fact that you're a citizen of the U.S., but I don't take it for granted because it was a long journey that ultimately led to me get, becoming a citizen. And I remember the morning of that particular event before we headed out to the convention center for me to be sworn in as a U.S. citizen. And Andrea and the kids were so excited. Um, We had four kids at the time. We didn't have Chloe. And most of our kids were little. They were toddler age and younger. And I remember that she got up and she dressed up herself and the kids in red, white, and blue. It was really, really cute, okay? And I promised myself I wasn't going to break down and cry as I'm sharing the story with you, okay? But it was a huge moment for us. It had been a long journey of about 20 years for me to become a U.S. citizen here in this country. Because all kinds of different circumstances that I'm not going to take the time to describe. But there was great excitement in our family. We get to the convention center, and you can just imagine family, friends, all kinds of people waiting outside. And then those who are going to become citizens go into the convention center. And I remember sitting in there with thousands of people who were just excited and chomping at the bits to... Um, uh, become a U.S. citizen. And I remember sitting next to one particular lady, and I was already in seminary at the time, so I had my Greek text open, reading and studying for an exam the next day. And she's asking me, what in the world are you reading? So I started talking to her about that, and I got an opportunity to share the gospel with her. And I asked her, I said, how many years have you been waiting to become a U.S. citizen? She said, 10 years. I go, wow. She says, I'm an Argentinian national and all this stuff has happened and it's been 10 years. And she asked me, how many years have you been waiting? I go, 20 years. Her eyes almost 
popped out of her um, face. She was shocked. 20 years. How could you have been here for so long? And of course, it's a long story and all of that. So we went through the ceremony. They asked us to stand up and we were sworn in and all of that. But my favorite part was exiting that convention center. And there were all kinds of friends and family there waiting uh, like in a parade-like fashion kind of um, um, setting. And people were cheering and all of that as we, as we walked out, those who had been sworn in. And as I'm walking, I see my family. Decked out, right? Red, white, and blue. All smiles. The kids are, are, have these big smiles. And I started, of course, hugging them and all of that. <clears throat> and one of my kids, I'll never forget this, looks at me and says as a toddler, Dad, God is faithful. God is faithful. I'll never forget that. That picture the other day reminded me of that. I thought, wow. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, thou hast established strength for yourself, right? And it reminded me the other day of even our text, that oftentimes as I remember that journey uh, leading to me becoming a citizen, oftentimes I doubted and I distrusted the Lord And I would get angry and frustrated. Oftentimes, beloved, I wouldn't connect what I knew theologically about who God is and his God-ordained circumstances and his gospel and his son to my particular circumstances and how I live my life. It's a huge lesson for me. And I think that if we were all honest today, I'm sure we can identify with that, right? doesn't have to be such a big situation like that. For us, it was a pretty huge thing. But given your particular Christian walk, how often do you connect that which you know to be true about Christ and what he's done and who he is to the way that you live so that you trust him in the midst of the trials that you are experiencing, be they physical, be they social, be they relational, whether in your marriage or with your kids or with other brothers and sisters, or be it your job or whatever, how often do you actually take what you know about Christ and begin to think about how that should connect and tie into the way that you think, worship, live, the priorities that you carry out? It's a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge because we are sinners, And we forget so quickly about the lessons that God has taught us about himself and our circumstances being lived well in the light of who he is. Well, this was the case for our Lord's disciples. They needed to be reminded of who Jesus is and what he had done so that they might trust him. Because think about the disciples. They were the ones that were going to take the baton from the Lord's hands and they were going to proclaim a risen, ascended Christ in just a few months. And so they needed to live by the conviction that Jesus truly was who he said he was and what he had done so that they can proclaim him and call people to trust in him. How were they going to call people to trust in Christ if they themselves didn't trust in Christ? If they didn't connect their circumstances to what they knew to be true about Jesus and who he was and what he had done. And so the lesson for them is a lesson for us as well. And as we think about this lesson, I want us to look at three particular, this particular passage in three parts. Okay, if you're taking notes, here's your outline. Ready? One, we have a repeat in verses 1 through 10. A repeat. We have a rebuke in verses 11 through 13. And we have a reminder in verses 14 through 21. A repeat, a rebuke, and a reminder. Let's look at a repeat miracle in verses 1 through 10. Once again, we see that there is a need in the life of our Lord Jesus, as we've seen again and again in the Gospel of Mark. It says in verse 1, if you look there, in those days when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat. See that little word there in verse 1, again? That is Mark singling out a repeated miracle here. Here's a repeated sign of what Je- something Jesus has done before. And so this is going to feel for us here in Mark chapter 8 like a retake, a take two, like you're reshooting a scene, if you will. Because that's exactly what is taking place here. It almost feels like deja vu for us all over again. I thought we went through this before. Yes, we did in Mark chapter 6 in the feeding of the 5,000. So notice there's, again, a large crowd. They had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion 
for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a long distance. So here's our Lord again ministering to a large crowd. But please note the beginning of verse 1. They find themselves in Gentile territory. That's highlighted by verse 1 where it says, In those days, that is the days when they were in the Decapolis, on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, predominantly Gentile, non-Jewish territory. And there's a need. There's these primarily Gentile crowds who have been with Jesus for three days, according to verse 2. And by this time, if you can imagine, they're very run down. They've been listening to teaching for a while, being ministered to. They've run out of food, daily sustenance, and they're very famished. And this is all taking place mostly in a place where it's wilderness. For three days they are there. And as always, notice how Jesus is not indifferent to the physical needs of these people. Nor was he partial because they were non-Jews. It says in verse 2 that he said, I feel compassion for the people. Well, we've seen again and again the compassion of Christ throughout Mark, haven't we? We were discussing this as, as pastors this last particular Tuesday morning about the need to continue to emphasize in our gospel, in our evangelism, the motivation of having compassion for the lost so that that would fuel our, our heart's desire to want to preach Christ to people because we genuinely have compassion for people. And we've seen this again and again with our Lord Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 1, verse 41, he sees the leper, and instead of running away from this unclean leper, Jesus has compassion for, the, for a leper who was a social outcast. And then in chapter 6 and verse 34, with the feeding of the 5,000, it says that Jesus was motivated to action because he saw the people that they were, he had compassion for them because they were like sheep having no shepherd. Listen, beloved, Christ's actions throughout Mark were motivated by a deep and genuine, heartfelt compassion for people. He genuinely felt compassion for them. And here in verse 3, we really see the humanity of Jesus and his compassion come out. Notice, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a long distance. Oh, Jesus knew what could happen because he took on human nature, didn't he? He added humanity to his deity. Jesus himself had experienced thirst and hunger even during the testing of Satan in the wilderness. He knew, he understood, he put himself in the lives and the, the, the world of humans. He understood what it was like to be famished. And so he's like, he's like a genuinely concerned parent here, wanting to ca- take care of not only the spiritual needs of the crowds, but also their physical needs. And I don't want us to mo- pass over this so quickly. This issue of Jesus' compassion for undeserving and rebellious people. Think about Christ. He is perfect, isn't he? Perfect, blameless. He has no sin. I mean, the distance between any one of us as sinners and any of these sinners, rebel sinners in that day, between them and Christ is endless. It's infinite. And yet Jesus, who is perfect, came to give his life as a ransom for many and to show this kind of compassion to rebel sinners. And yet we have such a difficult time doing this with others who are made in the image of God just like we are, right? See, the Lord Jesus understood that every person was a person made in the image of God. And so he showed compassion. Can I remind us of that this morning? That as hard as things get in our city, in our country, beloved, in our world, as, as rebellious, explicitly as people get, we are still called to be committed to the truth and be bold with the gospel and to show love and compassion in the proclamation of that gospel. Amen? Just like Christ. These were people who most of them were after him because they just wanted his gifts. They didn't love him. They weren't after him because they genuinely believed in him. They wanted the food. They wanted the physical sustenance. And yet he was compassionate toward them. If we are going to be Christ-like, we must be people who are committed to the truth of the gospel, practice with genuine love and compassion for people made in the image of God, just like you and I are, right? That co-worker that irritates you? That boss 
that lords his authority over you or her authority over you? That spouse that doesn't seem to understand your needs? That child that is rebellious? That extended family member who seems to, to constantly ostracize you or, or cast you out because of your faith in Christ? Those members of the LGBTQ movement that irritate you so much because of the explicit hostility against God and His Word. Listen to me. We are called to be people committed to the truth of the gospel and to have compassion for sinners who are just like us. Were it not for the grace of God, the compassion of Christ, beloved, should be something that we seek to emulate in our lives, and we cannot do it perfectly. We cannot do it infallibly as he did. We're not perfect as Jesus is. But by the grace of God, we should be people committed to walking in his steps. Amen? Being compassionate people. Because our Lord Jesus knew people were image bearers, he showed compassion. So there's a need here, and he wants to meet it. But then comes the test. Notice, Jesus is going to draw his disciples out again. How will they respond to this present need? Will they look to Jesus for his provision? Notice how they respond in verse 4. This is, this is amazing. Verse 4, And his disciples answer him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? You remember Mark chapter 6? I mean, the feeding of the 5,000, really the 15,000 or more, when you throw in there maybe a wife and a couple of kids for each of those men, right? I mean, he fed a lot of people. They've witnessed a miraculous feeding. They even participated as his servants, as waiters, in the distribution of food in Mark chapter 6, and yet they have the audacity to ask this. Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people. It's this particular verse, verse 4, this dullness, this dull response of the disciples that has led many to question whether this is not the same incident as the feeding of the 5,000. And maybe Mark just basically repeated himself, mixed up the two events and all of that in the details. And somewhere along the line, different scribes inserted the same account and just twisted things around. But there are some significant differences that say otherwise, okay? Seven in particular, and there are more. For one thing, first, the location is different, isn't it? Here they're on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, the Decapolis, as opposed to the region of Galilee on the west side, which was where the feeding of the 5,000 took place. This is a different location. Thus, two, the recipients are different. In Mark chapter 6, those are primarily Jews on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, But here, they're on the other side, and these are primarily Gentiles. Most Jews wouldn't be caught dead deep in Gentile territory, let alone the Decapolis of all places on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. So it can't be the same event. Third, there's the issue of time. If you notice in verse 2, it says that it's alluded to the fact that these people have now been three days there and have nothing to eat. But in Mark chapter 6, verse 35... It's evident that the feeding of the 5,000 were with Jesus less than a day. Difference of time. Four, Mark specifically tells us that the number of people here were 4,000, not 5,000. That's hardly not a small detail he would have missed, you think. So different quantities. And then notice also in verse 8 that the leftovers are much more than in the feeding of the 5,000, as we're going to see. And then finally, this is really the slam dunk right here. Sixth, Jesus himself referred to them as separate events. Look down in verse 19 of chapter 8. He's talking here to the disciples. Do you not remember the the end of verse 18? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, twelve. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. Jesus himself, in other words, mentions how many separate miracles? Two separate miracles. He mentions the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. Listen, I would rather take Jesus' word than the liberal scholars, right? 
These are two separate events. Two separate events. And a simple, straightforward reading of the text tells us the fact that these were separate, amazing miracles. This is a retake. This is a repeat miracle. And the question that we want to answer throughout here is, why? Why a repeat miracle here of the feeding of people? But notice he continues to test them in verse 5. And he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. According to Matthew chapter 15, verse 34, they answered, seven and a few small fish. Seven and a few small fish. Now, as in Mark chapter 6, you think that Jesus knows how much food they have? Yes, he knows. He's testing them here. Jesus wants these disciples to look to their own resources so that more importantly, they see their utter inability to provide for the present need, right? And to look to the one who, has, uh, who is unrivaled in authority and power and able to meet the need yet again. So that they look to him. Well, notice the solution in verse 6. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. Notice no mention of green grass as back in Mark chapter 6, verse 39 in the feeding of the 5,000. It's not the same location nor springtime anymore. Months have passed. And then verse 6, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them. He wants people to know this is a divine miracle. And started giving them to his disciples to serve to them. And they served them to the people as the last time the disciples again actively participate. They are the means through whom Jesus blessed the people. Verse 7, they also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. Jesus does it yet again, right? Another divine and powerful, miraculous sign, says Mark. Jesus creates, as God is able to create and provide, everything for these people. Why? Because he is who? God. He's God. He is the God-man. What's the result? Verse 8. And they ate and were satisfied. That is, they were full, stuffed, if you will. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. If you remember, there were 12 after the feeding of the 5,000. But those baskets in Mark chapter 6, note this, were traveler's baskets used to carry a day's worth of food. But the word for basket here in verse 8 is the same as Acts chapter 9, verse 25, where it refers to a basket large enough to carry a man, in that case Saul, and thus the leftovers were even more than in Mark chapter 6. You have seven large baskets enough to feed a big group of people here. You think that Jesus is able to provide for the needs of anyone? Yes. It's part of Mark's point here. Notice the summary in verse 9. About 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. Matthew fifteen thirty-eight says, besides women and children. So again, figure, most of these men married, maybe with a couple of kids minimum, you're looking at maybe 12,000 plus who are fed here. And the interesting thing about it is, if you compare this account with Mark chapter 6, is that there's no hint of the response of the crowd recorded. After the feeding of the 5,000, it says in John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, that the Jews wanted to make Jesus king. But here we're just told that Jesus takes off with his disciples right away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Look, look at verse 10. Immediately, and immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. Matthew fifteen thirty-nine says they came to the region of Magadan. Dalmanutha was most likely within the borders of Magadan. But the point is, they head out deliberately and quickly. And we ask, why? Why do they do this? Why another miracle, a repeat of the feeding of people, when Mark, think about this, could have chosen one of 18 other miracles that appear in the other Gospels. He could have chosen another one of those miracles. Why the feeding of the 4,000? I think the answer is one, there was a genuine, real need here, wasn't there? 
There were people who were hungry, who were famished, who were needed to be fed. And Jesus was one who genuinely cared for people. He showed compassion for people. But also I submit to you this, that the answer is that this is a repeat reminder to his disciples of his greatness and his ability to provide as one who is God. Because it's so easy to forget about the goodness of God, right? It's so easy to forget about His glory and His majesty and His ability, beloved, to provide for you even today as a believer for everything that you need, not necessarily the things that you want. We need these repeat reminders, don't we? I think that's the reason why Jesus is doing this. He wants to strengthen their faith. These are hard-headed guys, aren't they? We see this again and again in the Gospels. Now listen... As hard-headed as they are, they are not as hard-hearted as our next group. And so in verses 11 through 13, we see a rebuke. A rebuke. In verse 10, we read that Jesus and his disciples, they jump on the boat and they cross the Sea of Galilee to the west side, back into Jewish territory. Remember, this is after a long trip deep into Gentile territory. Now they're back. And before Jesus can even jump off the boat, guess who is waiting for him? The religious leaders, the Pharisees, right? Verse 11, the Pharisees came out. And it wasn't only the Pharisees, by the way. Matthew chapter 16, verse 1, the parallel account tells us also the Sadducees came out to pick a fight with Jesus. Both of these groups come together. Listen, the Pharisees and the Sadducees couldn't stand each other. They couldn't stand each other. The Pharisees were the gatekeepers of the law, as we've seen. They were focused just on more on their traditions than actually people adhering to the very law of Moses. The Sadducees were sort of the noble or higher class, the elite class. They were the rationalists, were the Sadducees of the religious group. They rejected the supernatural, rejected angels, rejected spirit beings. After the death of our Lord and His resurrection, they denied the literal resurrection of Christ. Because obviously the resurrection of Christ was a miracle, right? The Sadducees rejected all of those things. So these two groups couldn't stand one another. They wouldn't come together for anything. But here we see that they agree on their disdain and rejection of Jesus. They wanted to discredit Him. And so as soon as Jesus arrives, verse 11... They begin to argue with him. That word argue there has the idea of inspecting. They were like detectives investigating Jesus. They begin to argue with him. And what do they want? Notice in verse 11, they were seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. How ironic. How ironic. Mark just showed a repeat, a retake, amazing miracle They probably heard of this. That's part of the reason why they're there. But it's not enough, beloved. It's not enough that Jesus has shown his greatness and his power over and over again. They've heard of the testimony from people in the crowds. They've witnessed it themselves, many of these religious leaders. They've witnessed the casting casting out of demons. The miraculous healing of sicknesses. The calming of storms and winds. It's not enough that Jesus has displayed his unrivaled power and authority over the spiritual realm, the demonic realm, the physical realm, the human realm, all of those realms, and still they won't believe it's not enough for them. They test him. That was their motivation. According to verse 11, they did this to test him. Their motivation wasn't really, Lord, tell us about you. Jesus, tell us about you. We really want to believe. I mean, when you share the gospel with somebody, if they really, it's, it's good to give evidence, right? To show them from the word of God. To even have, have loving argumentation. As long as you detect that a person really wants to know the truth, it's okay to do that. But you know when that person becomes hostile and antagonistic and all of that, that it's over, right? They're just testing you. They don't really want to know the truth. That's the idea here with these religious leaders. They don't want to know the truth. There's been enough signs already. They want a sign from heaven, a celestial sign. Show us here the real deal. Maybe show us a sign on the level of the sun standing still and the moon stopping like during the days of Joshua in Joshua chapter 10 verse 13. Part the Red Sea again like the days of Moses in Exodus chapter 14. 
Show us a greater sign. Implication, everything you've said and done to this point, two plus years means nothing to us. We want to see greater signs from you. They're unbelieving. It doesn't matter how much proof Jesus gives them. What audacity, right? That they would sit back as, as the jury in judgment of the king of the universe. Look at the Lord's response in verse 12. Wow. I don't know about you, but I would have snapped right there, right? Getting a piece of my mind and all of that. Look at verse 12. Here's another glimpse into the real humanity of Christ. Sign deeply in his spirit. Sign deeply in his spirit. This exact wording appears only here in the New Testament. Sign deeply. He intensely groans from the very depths of his spirit, of his being. Listen, beloved, Jesus didn't only feel the infirmities of people, he felt their rejection as well, right? He created them. He created them. He made them for his glory. And yet they are rejecting him. So he sighs deeply in his spirit, but then he has some words for them, doesn't he? Look at verse 12. He said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation, right? My translation, I've done enough. If you don't believe me through all that I've done, these amazing miracles that point to who I am and therefore what I'm able to do to save you from your sins, no more miracles, I'm done. That's it. No more signs to this generation. Mark leaves it here. But turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, back a few pages. Matthew 16 and verse 1. This is the parallel account in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 1. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, verse 2. When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Listen to this. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. You know what Jesus says to them? You know very little, and you know very basic things about the weather, but as little as you know about the weather, you know much less about theology and the signs of the times. What a put-down. What a put-down for those who were the theologians of the day. Those who who should have known better. Jesus says, you can't even discern the signs of the times that your Messiah is here. I'm right here before your very eyes. I have nothing else to say. No more signs for you. That's what he says to them. They wanted more proof, more proof. Everything he had said and done to this point wasn't enough. Listen, beloved, times haven't changed. It's the same thing for so many people in our culture today. People want more proof, more signs that there's a God. People want more proof that there's the existence of the one true God. It isn't enough that God has created a universe that cries out and preaches out to people saying, there is a God and he's majestic and he's glorious and he's created this vast universe so that you would see him and glorify him and worship him. That isn't enough. People want more proof for the existence of God than what they can see. Yet Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. There is enough proof for people regarding the existence of God. It isn't enough that God has given people a conscience. A conscience that tells them that there is a God and that there's a right and that there's a wrong, that there's evil and that there's good. It isn't enough. People want more proof today. It isn't enough that God keeps you alive every single day, you and I alive. It isn't enough for us. We want more proof that he actually cares for us, that he actually is concerned for us. And how about the greatest sign of all? How about the greatest sign of all? Christ's coming. Right? That's what Jesus was saying to them essentially. If you don't even believe me or that I can rise from the dead, I have no more signs for you. No more signs for you. 
Your problem is, is that you're unbelieving. It's not proof that you need. Listen to my words and look at my works, my miraculous signs, and therefore respond in belief and worship. These rebel sinners didn't recognize the arrival of their Messiah. Jesus rebukes them, and listen, He holds them responsible for their rejection. Can I remind you this morning, if you are not a Christian, and you have not turned from your sins and trusted in Christ, God's only provision for payment of your sins, God is going to hold you responsible for the listening of that good news concerning God's provision and the sacrifice of Christ, and He's going to judge you for it. Do you understand that? There's a heaven and there's a hell. There's a heaven for those who embrace Jesus Christ and who will dwell with God in perfect relationship, unhindered by any sin. We will dwell with God forever and ever and ever, enjoying Him and glorifying Him and beholding Him as He is. But there's also a hell that is a place that is a reminder of your rejection of Christ as God's provision for your sins. Of the seriousness of of rejecting God's love for you in Christ Jesus. There's judgment coming for those who reject God's proof. There was judgment coming for these religious leaders as well. Notice verse 13, leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side, back to the east side of the sea. This is a very sudden and deliberate departure. We've seen a repeat, a rebuke, and thirdly, notice a reminder in verses 14 through 21. And here's really the punchline of this whole account. You see, the disciples were in a different place than the religious leaders, right? They had heard Jesus' call to follow. They had obeyed Jesus' call. They had been with Him. They had heard His teaching. They have seen His great miracles. They'd been with Him. They were devoted to Him. They have their own struggles with their faith, but they needed to grow stronger in their faith, especially... As we now head to the climax, the peak of the letter in chapter 8 of verse 27 of Mark, where Jesus is going to explicitly ask them, who do you say that I am? These guys needed to be solidified and strengthened in their faith in Christ because they were going to have to go and proclaim a risen Savior to people. They needed to be strengthened in their own faith. And so Jesus is about to expose their little faith And remind them of the fact that they need to trust Him. Look at verse 14. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. Now think about this. Transport yourself to that boat in the Sea of Galilee. You've seen the feeding of 15,000 plus, the feeding of 12,000 plus. You've seen Jesus rebuke the religious leaders for their unbelief. And here they are, preoccupied with where their next meal is going to come from. They're focused on a real need, but a physical and earthly need nevertheless, right? Amazing. Jesus uses this opportunity to drive home the lesson. Look at verse 15. And he was giving orders to them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Jesus gets very lively and very exhortational here. Two commands. One, watch out. He says, be mentally alert. Open your eyes. And secondly, beware. In other words, be spiritually perceptive. Pay attention, Jesus is saying. Pay attention. Be alert. About what? About the leaven of of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. In the Old Testament, leaven was symbolic of evil influence, of spiritual defilement. So what Jesus is saying here is don't be influenced by what? By the unbelieving rejection of these people. Don't be influenced by them. Think about what just happened and the utter rejection of those religious leaders. In Matthew 16 and verse 12, the parallel account, it tells us that Jesus was specifically talking about the teaching of the Pharisees. The teaching. But these various groups showed their unbelieving rejection through that teaching, didn't they? They were unbelieving. They rejected Christ. So Jesus essentially is saying, don't be influenced by the Pharisees. What did the Pharisees do? We've seen it. They're man-made traditions. They elevate their traditions above God. They're externalists. They don't worship God from the heart. Beware of that. 
Don't be influenced by the Sadducees, trusting in their human reason, rejecting all supernatural miracles, and thus even Jesus later on rising from the dead. They were not to be influenced by Herod and the Herodians, consumed with themselves, with their power and influence, being so consumed by self-glory and self-gratification. Jesus doesn't want them to be influenced by the teaching of these various groups, which ultimately showed their utter unbelief in Christ, right? That they had a low view of Christ. Each of these groups put their trust in themselves rather than Christ. And so the lesson of the leaven, listen, is our Lord's exhortation to his disciples to not be influenced by the unbelief and rejection of the world around them away from Christ. Away from Christ. Notice they don't get it, verse 16. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. Matthew 16, 7 says that they began to discuss among themselves, saying, it is because we took no bread, essentially, that he says this. They don't get it. They're focused on physical, earthly things, but Jesus is trying to get at something else here, isn't he? And so he helps his disciples learn the lesson by asking some diagnostic questions. Look at verse 17. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? In other words, it's not about the physical bread, you blockheads. Don't you get it? It's not about those things. Verse 18, Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear. That's a quotation from Jeremiah 5.21 where God rebukes his people for forgetting about him and the great things that he had done for them. See, they needed a reminder. And this is key. Look at verse 18. And do you not remember? Do you not remember? Remember what, Lord? Verse 19. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, twelve. Verse 20, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. Do you not remember? Verse 21, and he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? What is our Lord getting at here, beloved? Haven't you seen the miraculous signs? Haven't you seen my greatness and my power? Why are you focused on physical things like physical sustenance and all of these things when I'm here before your very eyes? I'm here, the God-man. I can provide for you. As long as Jesus is in the boat with you, you're good, right? You're good. You can trust him. You can rest in him. Jesus was reminding his disciples here of who he is again in order to strengthen their faith. In fact, this is explicit. This is the lesson explicitly stated in Matthew 16, 8. He refers to them as you men of little faith. They have faith, but it's little faith. It's the only place where that appears in the Gospels and always directed at his disciples. They are disciples of little faith. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 31, he uses it of Peter who begins to drown. He takes his eyes off of Jesus when walking on the water. And then Jesus says to him, remember, Peter, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You of little faith. His disciples had faith, but they needed to have their faith strengthened so that they would appropriate what they knew to be true about Jesus to their present circumstances and walk with him, right? And beloved, the same lesson applies to us today. The same lesson. We must learn to live in the light of who Christ is and what he has done for us. We need to remember who Jesus is, what he's done What he's promised to do into the future so that, listen, it impacts the way that you live as a Christian. So that if this morning you are experiencing heavy, difficult circumstances, be they of a physical nature, maybe sickness, maybe you're not able to do the things that you used to do anymore and you're discouraged by that. Maybe spiritual lethargy in your life, spiritual sadness, whatever. Listen to me. The answer is to return and remember who Christ is and what he's done on your behalf. And to act upon that. 
to rest in Him, to trust Him. We need to remember who Christ is in our relationships with one another so that we live with one another in love and practicing the truth toward one another because of what Christ has done for us and that He's united us to be part of one body, right? If you're a believer, we need to remember who Christ is, what He's done and what He's promised to do so that we live well, beloved, in our trials. Be they of a financial nature, be they the trials that we see uh, because of ostracism and the opposition in our world, in our country. Listen, are you living, trusting in Christ, knowing that He has promised to return and He's going to deliver the final death blow to His enemies? Are you living in the light of that great promise of Christ that He's coming back? As you learn about Christ, His words, His amazing works, do you worship Him? Do you worship Him? Do you trust Him by God's grace? Do you cast your burdens and your cares upon your high priest? Because He's promised to be there for you, to intercede for you or for you daily, moment by moment throughout the day. Let me ask you, do you, by God's grace, strive to apply and appropriate what you know to be true about God through His Word to your daily Christian walk, Christian? That's the question and that's the struggle of the Christian and the believer. Amen? Every single day. What a lesson to his disciples. They had faith, but they had little faith. They were not to be like the religious leaders, rejecting all of the signs and the miracles of Christ. They were to remember all of Jesus' words and works so that they lived differently. May we do the same too, beloved. Let me pray for us. Father God, Thank you for the lesson that, Lord, we need to be people who not only hear messages about your Son, not only study your Word so that we might grow in knowledge. That's where it begins, Father. But you desire that we would be people who are doers of the Word and not merely hearers who are self-deceived. Help us to act upon what we know to be true. As your Son desired that his disciples would grow stronger in their faith in order to accomplish their mission, so we must as well, Lord. Only when we grow in our view of Christ and His glory and His majesty and by conviction we live that He is the only Redeemer, the hope for the world, only then will we be people who are compelled out of compassion and a desire to see Him glorified on this earth to preach Christ to other people. Lord, please help us. Give us the grace to be people of faith, Grow our faith, strengthen our faith in Jesus Christ, not faith in ourselves, not faith in our resources, not faith in even circumstances in our country and our world being what we desire for them to be. Lord, help us to have faith in Christ, in our King Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.